Welcome to the NACOcast for the week of May 8th, 2006. This is Christopher Millard from the National Arts Centre Orchestra here in Ottawa, Canada. Well, a bit of a departure this week for our NACO cast. It's an exciting week here at the NAC because our music director, Pinka Zuckerman, is returning after an absence of about four months. We're very much looking forward to our program this week. Being a bassoon player, I'm a bit of a cheeky guy. So I'm going to take advantage of Pinkus's return to play you something that's a little bit out of the ordinary and a bit of an extended version of the NACO cast this week. A few days ago, I gave a talk to some volunteers from the National Arts Centre Orchestra Association. The talk was basically about conductors. Do we need them? I was speaking to a group of music lovers, and as you will hear, they participated in a bit of an experiment. The answer to the question, well, it's not surprising that, in my view, I think we do need conductors, but listen to what I've got to say and see whether you agree with this. So from the Salon of the National Arts Centre, here's the little talk that I gave. Of all the mysteries of the symphony orchestra, none is more resistant to illumination than the function of the conductor. <laughs> For the contemporary audience, the myth of the maestro was born in the legends of the autocrats of the past century. The Toscanini model of the music director is tyrant, the icy Fritz Reiner, the glamorous and mercurial Leopold Stokowski. The 20th century was a fertile ground for all the larger-than-life occupants of the podium. The advent of recordings, radio, film, television brought fame and adulation to a wide range of men, and they were almost exclusively men. The mystique widened with the ever-increasing mass audience enabled by the new technologies. And long before orchestras developed sophisticated models of governance, the maestro was the all-powerful musical magician, hiring and firing at will, and with only a short white baton, was somehow capable of sculpting a cohesive whole out of the chaos of 50 or 100 musicians. How on earth does this alchemy of temperament and sound work? This conversion of black ink on paper, the scraping of horsehair on catgut, and the rude buzz of lips into the philosopher's gold of a Brahms symphony. After 31 years in this business, I'm still trying to figure it out. Well, let's cut to the chase. With my $35,000 bassoon, yeah, and my colleagues with their $200,000 violins, our collective education and our collective training, our daily conversion of food calories into muscle movement, it certainly appears that we do most of the work on stage. I suppose you've noticed that despite the occasional grunter and heavy breather, conductors don't actually contribute anything at all to the physical sound of the orchestra. So do we really need these guys? Founded in 1972 by New York cellist Julian Pfeiffer and a group of fellow musicians who aspire to perform orchestral repertoire without a conductor, the Orpheus Chamber Orchestra is a self-governing organization in New York City. 
Central to its distinctive personality is its unique practice of sharing and rotating leadership roles. For every work, the members of the orchestra select the concertmaster and the principal players for each section. These players constitute the core group, whose role is to form the initial concept of the piece and to shape the rehearsal process. In the final rehearsals, all members of the orchestra participate in refining the interpretation and the execution, with members taking turns listening from the auditorium for balance, blend, articulation, dynamic range, and clarity of expression. Well, at least that's what their press release says. <laughs> the ensemble is really wonderful. They play with great precision, imagination, and expression. Now, these are first-rate musicians with excellent ensemble skills. What do they need with a conductor? But at what price have they achieved liberation? Well, let me demonstrate. If you're all willing to let it hang out this morning and pursue an experiment with me, we can create a laboratory for research right here in the salon of the NAC. You've probably been wondering about the uh, cue sheets that you have that says the NACOA Salon Ensemble. <laughs> well, that's you, folks. You are all charter members of the NACOA Salon Ensemble. Now, your cue sheet contains the words for two poems, a well-known children's nursery rhyme and something a bit more challenging from D.H. Lawrence. Anyway, these poems are going to test your ability to listen to one another and your intuitive skills leading and following. Okay? The first challenge is for all of you to recite Hickory Dickory together. But the trick is... I'm not going to give you any help. Won't tell you when to start, how fast you're going to recite, or how loud your voices should be. Your only cue is that, like an orchestra on stage, you'll begin when the audience, which is me, is quiet and ready. So just give me a moment to turn off my cell phone, <coughs> and cough, <coughs> and make sure I've got all the candy wrappers out of my pocket. OK, I'm ready. Hickory dickory dock, the mouse ran up the clock. The clock struck one, the mouse ran down. Hickory dickory dock. Okay, bravo. Thank you very much. I give you a standing ovation. That wasn't bad. On the other hand, you knew how to do this when you were four years old. So it's fair to say that you practiced your part before the rehearsal. Did you notice that once you got started, it was kind of together? Yeah. Did you also notice that one or two brave souls started you all off? All right. These people are the natural born concert masters. The natural leaders. Your order of Canada is in the mail. Of course, if their leadership skills are going to work in an orchestra, they can't recite or play ahead of their sections. And by the way, if you all expect to keep your enviable positions in the Nicoa Salon Ensemble, you can't constantly play behind the front desk. In any case, we've identified the first challenge for the conductor-less orchestra, starting together. In a string quartet, the first violinist prepares the ensemble with his bow arm, his eyes, and perhaps his breath. For a forte allegro entrance, a clear preparatory signal shows his colleagues the moment to begin. And in the dolce adagio, they can see when the bow hair is about to touch the string. But the more musicians we add to the ensemble, the more possibility for error. 
Eventually, the group becomes too large for everyone to face each other or to make eye contact. Here is where the experienced concertmaster can help, using his bow as a baton and showing the orchestra more precisely where to begin and at what tempo. So, with this little bit of information and this slight change of tactic, we're going to repeat our first challenge. Now, Hickory Dickory, I've studied this, I went to music school. <laughs> Hickory Dickory is ostensibly in 4-4 time, or arguably 12-8 time, meaning that if we continuously and rhythmically count 1, 2, 3, 4, we will have a metric pulse and a way to keep our speaking tempo steady. You need to consider that each beat is divided into three triplets, and that's because hickory and dickory are words with three equal syllables. So with my bow arm here, I'm going to give you three, four, and from this you'll understand the tempo and the precise moment to play. Okay, you ready? Hickory, dickory, Not bad, not bad, it's getting better, <laughs> slowly. But now, interpretation begins. And with interpretation comes dissent. The principal second reciter is not happy with the rhythmic interpretation. She came to the Nicoa Salon Ensemble with a background in Baroque period performance practice. <laughs> And she strongly believes that the rhythm in the words hickory and dickory were not intended to be recited as even triplets, but rather as hickory dickory, more of a Sicilian rhythm. Beethoven used this in his Seventh Symphony, right? First movement. The first chair of the adjacent section interrupts and says, the problem here isn't the rhythm, it's the tempo. If we recited this damn thing faster, we wouldn't be having this argument. Oh, give me a break, says a tired voice from the back. My part's really hard, and I don't think I can do it justice if we up the tempo. In real life, he plays clarinet in his company's marching band. <laughs> well, somebody decide, says the bassoonist in the back row. I need to get through this rehearsal because I've got students to teach all afternoon and gas prices are going up at one o'clock. <laughs> Now the concertmaster, who by the way is traditionally the highest paid member of the Nicoa Salon Ensemble, steps in and says, okay folks, we're going to do it again two notches faster, starting mezzo forte, make a big crescendo with the words the mouse ran down, and a big ritardando in the final hickory dickory dock, and no Siciliano rhythm. You got that instruction? But I helped you, didn't I? I helped you. I think with a bit of repetition, we'll get this figured out. And it, it's not likely to be a particularly cohesive interpretation because choices have been made purely for expedience, for ease of execution. But it will start and eventually end together, mostly, and the audience will get to hear the poem. My suspicion is that when the Orpheus Chamber Orchestra rehearses a simple German dance of Mozart, this is pretty much the way things go. But now we're going to move on to the second piece in our rehearsal. It's a rather more complex poem of D.H. Lawrence. Well, let's suppose that for Orpheus, it's rather like an orchestral tone poem by 
Arnold Bax or Frederick Delius, shall we say. Unlike our nursery rhyme overture, this work is not in a consistent meter. The rhythms are complex, and the underlying meaning is so complex that we are going to have a more significant struggle just to say it together. Nevertheless, despite the earlier interpretive difficulties of Hickory Dickory Dock, we are all committed to a conductorless ensemble. So all eyes turn to the concertmaster's bow, and with two easy motions, he indicates when we begin. If you think we had problems with Hickory Dickory Dock, <laughs> this seems to be an insurmountable challenge. Or is it? After all, if we examine more deeply the metaphor of a crowd of people reciting poetry on a Saturday morning in the salon of the NAC in Ottawa, we could describe a scenario where the possibility of a cohesive and dramatically authentic presentation of D.H. Lawrence is conceivable, just as the Delius tone poem would eventually be to the Orpheus Ensemble. Imagine you are all university graduates in English. Not only have you all read the major works of D.H. Lawrence and listened to his own recitations on old 78 records, but you've also studied the recitation traditions of this particular poem on a one-to-one -one basis with your professors. You even have the original breath marks from a recently discovered copy of the poem from D.H. Lawrence's own library. You've practiced this poem at home with a metronome in certain places to clarify the speed and the steadiness, and you've even resorted to the use of a digital tuner to make sure your delivery is neither too dull and flat or too brittle and sharp. Of course, this level of preparation is not going to guarantee that any of you will have the same interpretation when you begin your first read-through, but you can appreciate that all the background all this background heightens your immediate ability to comprehend and adapt to an emerging collective interpretation. It'll take time and commitment to emerge, but it will eventually happen. So it, it's at this point where the many lives and educations of all the musicians converge, where the description of a conductor's real role emerges. Certainly, our efforts to achieve good ensemble will be made immeasurably easier with a conductor. In fact, in small chamber orchestra works, especially those of 8 to 15 or 20 players, the decision to hire a conductor is often one merely of facility, of getting the group to a performance level in a reasonable time frame. But at what point does the presence of a conductor prove to be a purely artistic decision? And this is a surprisingly difficult question to answer. Given an unlimited rehearsal period, 
a group of suitably flexible personalities, a willingness to indulge in endless dialectic, you can achieve a remarkably successful performance. And but, and here's the really interesting question, is the product greater than the sum of the parts? I think the answer depends entirely on the size and the complexity of the music. Not for a moment would I suggest that a string quartet led by a conductor would somehow be more cohesive. And nor would I say that a Mendelssohn string octet would benefit from a skilled maestro. Chamber music approaches its most sublime because of the trust and reliance of each individual on every other individual. But just as in any social organization, consensus becomes more and more problematic as the numbers increase. And most of us have good reason to fear the product of committee decisions. Artistic vision, whether it be in visual art, literature, or music, is measured by the achievements of individuals. I would argue that in music, as in politics or business, the product can exceed the sum of the parts only with effective leadership. The successful conductor unites the energy and the experience of the collective and delivers a unified interpretation, but it's a difficult task. To start with, you must understand that a conductor's job is as much psychological as it is musical, or at least it begins that way. Trust is everything, and to earn it requires presenting your musical credentials in a very special way. The successful conductor must be immediately aware of the talents and proclivities of the musicians surrounding him. He must understand that his job is not to read the Ten Commandments to a group of wandering souls who are lost in the desert of their own musical incompleteness and just waiting to receive instructions from on high. And it really doesn't matter how deeply he understands the score, how familiar he is with tradi traditions of performance. It doesn't matter if he has Bruno Walter's Boeings. It makes no difference if he has a signed letter from Winifred Wagner stating that his lecture on Lohengrin was the greatest in the history of the Bayreuth Festival. What matters is how he's able to incorporate the strengths and the weaknesses of the orchestra in front of him into his internal ideal concept. What matters is how successfully he can woo the 60 or 100 egos. What matters is his ability to create a performance that synthesizes his knowledge with this orchestra now. Orchestras have changed as dramatically in the last 60 years as every other part of our social fabric. In 1950, Arturo Toscanini could still exercise dictatorial power over his musicians. In 1960, Fritz Reiner could still hire and fire at will. In 1970, George Zell could still exercise an almost godlike authority, but this has all passed. Musicians today are arguably better trained and certainly better organized. No music director in the last couple of decades has had the power to hire and fire indiscriminately. No conductor can expect to walk onto a new podium and have everything go entirely his way. We've seen freedom, we've seen the promised land. <laughs> well, I digress. <laughs> I certainly don't want to discuss the politics of orchestras. I want to stay with the subject of how a conductor achieves something wonderful. 
In many ways, it's a process of persuasion. He must respect the orchestra's tradition. Where that tradition differs substantially from his wishes, he must present his arguments gently. There is probably still benefit for us to continue the poem as a metaphor for music. Well, of course, it is music, isn't it? Poetry taps the same part of our brain and stirs the same emotional pot. Well, suppose the Nicoa Salon Ensemble last performed at the window with their dearly beloved and now retired former music director. His name was Eduardo Broadbent. <laughs> their performances of this poem were always held in high regard. Eduardo always convinced his ensemble that in the second stanza, the words clustered tombstones referred to the East Block of Parliament. But your new director, we'll call her Audrey McLayton, <laughs> believes that clustered tombstones is a veiled reference to the remnants of a once great public works program that has fallen victim to budget cuts. But it's very important for your performance to have impact, and you all cherish the irony implicit in Eduardo's understanding of the words. Yet, your new director is a committed and effective social activist as well as a skilled professor of English literature. And with a little gentle cajoling, you all fall into the more caustic interpretation of the words. Well, I'm being a little silly, but I think you can see the point. I may not like the second movement of Mozart's Prague Symphony in a slow six, but I may be persuaded if there are general indications that a conductor has thought this through and understands the ramifications. I may prefer the transparency of a Christopher Hogwood interpretation of a Bach orchestral suite, but I will be perfectly happy with a thicker and more romantic version if certain other qualities are apparent. So let's touch on some of those signals that musicians look for. Do you know that for most orchestras, an opinion about a conductor can start forming in the first 15 seconds of a rehearsal? The assessments begin with the first downbeat, and you'd be surprised how indicative that first motion can be of a conductor's qualifications. It's not a question of being able to move your arms exactly like your conducting teacher has demonstrated. In fact, the actual technique of conducting is far less important than the technique of an instrumentalist. Time and phrase direction can be communicated with the most nebulous motions, though I will admit that most musicians prefer conductors with a clear beat. What counts is how the conductor moves as he responds to the orchestra, or more importantly, when he moves. Nothing is more revealing than when a conductor says, you need to stick with my beat, play closer to my beat. Musicians hear this a lot, and I can promise you that when a conductor finds it necessary to say this and finds this a problem, it's his responsibility. There is a safety zone in the response time of an orchestra to the beat. A delay between the indication of the beat and the actual moment when all the musicians listening and feeling each other through experience actually produce a sound. And I know it can be very disconcerting for an audience to see an orchestra playing way behind the beat, but it's not necessarily a sign of problems. Good conductors don't just need to be in the moment. They need to be in the next moment. Let me tell you a wonderful and true story. My old friend Kazuyoshi Akiyama, the former conductor of the Vancouver Symphony, who hired me at age 22 for that orchestra, 
was a master of the Saito school of conducting technique. Like his friend Seiji Ozawa, he was, and is, a pleasure to watch. He could show everything with his stick, and as he was often uncomfortable with clear verbal expression, it was a very good thing. Anyway, Kazu told me an unbelievable story about serving on the jury for a young conductor's prize in Tokyo some years ago. A candidate walked out on stage, bowed to the audience, the jury, and the musicians, and proceeded to mount the podium. He stood, his arms elevated but still, for what soon became an embarrassingly long period of time. The jury chairman asked him to begin. The candidate turned and nodded and returned to his statue-like vigil. And finally, the jury chairman yelled, please begin, what are you waiting for? Oh, said the young man, I'm waiting for the orchestra to begin playing. <laughs> you know, this story is not so amazing to an orchestral musician because we deal with a very subtle form of this basic misunderstanding more frequently than we would like. There's a critical moment of interaction, a manipulation of time, if you will, that occurs in an ongoing way between conductor and orchestra. If the signal for a crescendo comes in the middle of the crescendo, it's too late. The conductor must inhabit that upcoming moment, and to some extent, so must his beat. I imagine that all of you have had dreams of standing in front of an orchestra and conducting your favorite symphony. <laughs> well, in my many years in, in the orchestra business, I've seen a fair number of amateurs attempt this. It's usually the result of making a very large donation to the orchestra <laughs> or winning some sort of dubious contest. Most of them just wave their arms about, you know, enjoying the ballet. But the occasional one has actually come prepared. Learned the beat patterns, right? Learned how to give an upbeat, but without fail. Without fail, the amateur gets immediately bogged down waiting for the orchestra and trying to give her beat at the same moment as the musicians. One of two things happens. The orchestra gradually gets slower and slower, <laughs> grinding to a halt, or, and this is more likely, they keep their eyes glued to the music, <laughs> ignore what's in front of them and play the right tempo. The skilled conductor understands that every orchestra has a slightly different sense of that time differential and adapts her motions appropriately. The skilled conductor understands that she is not actually making a sound with her baton, but using it and the rest of her body and all of her mind to generate subtle signals for the orchestra to follow. And much more than that, the skilled conductor understands the complex give and take between her internal expression and the individual expression of the musicians in the orchestra. The skilled conductor mediates diverse opinion where necessary, allows group character to speak, permits the orchestral soloist a certain latitude of freedom. My list goes on. The skilled conductor can hear the difference between a sharp piccolo and a flat piccolo. That's not easy even for the piccolo player. <laughs> The skilled conductor understands that changing string bowings just to follow those brilliant red pencil markings in Gustav Mahler's score recently discovered in the London Museum 
is not always the wisest decision. The skilled conductor trusts the orchestra's experience of the acoustics of its own theater and presumes that the musicians have some reason for choosing particular kinds of volume, color, and balance. The skilled conductor cultivates the latent enthusiasm of even the most cynical of the musicians. The skilled conductor is a master at time management, of using her allotted rehearsal time like a doctor in a triage unit. The skilled conductor understands that if someone is not looking up, it's probably because she's not offering anything valuable to look up at. <laughs> the skilled conductor does not need to ask an orchestra to stick to the beat. She will accept the response delay and work with it. As I said, skilled conductors do not always have really clear beats. Fritz Reiner once fired a bass player, this is true, who was caught looking at him in rehearsal through a telescope. <laughs> trying to make a point about how small the gestures were. <laughs> we had a conductor with the NAC orchestra last week who I thought was fantastic. He was the Norwegian Arild Remerite. Oh, yes. But you know, his beat was not very clear but his intent and his energy were absolutely obvious. He reminded me of the late Sergio Comissione, our music director in the Vancouver Symphony for 10 years in the 90s. Sergio's beat was often so nebulous you couldn't imagine what the time signature was. Yet, his performances were invested with an energy and a musical insight that were often unforgettable. For him, a clear technique was not a priority. In fact, I always suspect that he intentionally muddied things in order that the musicians would pay more attention to their own ensemble and not just rely on the podium. This is a very important concept. Responsibility for ensemble is not always the conductors. In a good performance, there's a balance between the orchestra's ability to hold itself together and the conductor's role in molding that togetherness into a more musically flexible and interesting product. This is a lesson that young musicians need to hear. Well, everything that I'm talking about probably makes sense to you. The problem for an audience is that it's really tough to understand when a conductor is being valued by an orchestra. And when the conductor's presence has truly taken the orchestra to a higher level than our conductorless salon ensemble. Truthfully, when I go to attend a concert, I will usually ask a musician afterwards, how was the conductor? I usually can't tell very much unless I'm in the situation and reacting to it. Orchestras sometimes watch as a guest conductor receives a huge response from an audience, even though the musicians may feel none was warranted. We sometimes feel like shouting, we did that without any help from the podium. <laughs> I suppose we sometimes deliver a simulacrum of a greatly conducted performance. After all, it is our responsibility to play with motivation and commitment. Sometimes we get a lot of help from the podium, and sometimes not. By the way, unanimous agreement within an orchestra about a conductor is pretty rare. Unanimity doesn't happen naturally, which is why we need conductors in the first place. <laughs> Thank you. Well, I hope you enjoyed that little talk that I gave a few days ago. Love to hear your comments, as always. 
Write to us at nacocast at gmail.com. We always look forward to your comments. I hope you'll tune into next week's NACOcast. As you probably remember, I've given you a teaser over the last few weeks about our contest to win an iPod Nano. Well, next week's the week. Stay tuned. I'm going to ask a tricky little question based upon one of our previous episodes. If you listen carefully, you'll have a chance at winning this great prize. For the National Arts Center Orchestra, this is Christopher Millard. <laughs>